Most of you know we are in the midst of a study going through the book of Revelation, so please turn there. Revelation chapter 14. Lord willing, we're going to finish off two chapters today and finish off the parenthesis between the trumpets and the bowls. You know we're in the electronic age when our uh, phone directory not only has uh, beeper numbers, but uh, email addresses in it. And you hear uh, cell phones going off in the assembly. Hopefully not this morning. And I like the announcement about um, the prayer meeting. What a, can you think of a better way to start off the new year than in prayer? I think it's great that the prayer meeting coincides with the new year this year. Let's start it off right. Okay, Revelation chapter 14. It's a rather difficult uh, part of this chapter. is fairly difficult, so we'll try to break it down and um, comment on the more difficult sections as we go. We'll read the first five verses to begin with. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Chapter 14 breaks down into three sections. This is the first section. It's uh, the mention again of the 144,000. Those of you who were here remember that we first saw them in chapter 7. There are 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, of Israel, and 12 times 12,000 makes 144,000. No, they are not uh, members of a popular cult today. They are Jews, purebred Jews. And, and say, people say, well, uh, how do you know what tribe they're from? Don't worry, God knows. And there will be exactly as he says, 12,000 from each tribe. Uh, I liked this idea that they have their own song. Do you notice that in verse uh, 3? Isn't that, isn't that neat? They have their own song, and it says no one can learn that song but them. I think that's wonderful. It's a new song. Uh, I, I would suspect that God is the author. And I don't think it's so much that it's difficult musically, uh, but it's a peculiar song for them. Beyond that, I don't know what the content of it is. I certainly can't hum it for you. But I think it's wonderful uh, that they have this song that they alone can sing. Uh, We're going to talk about this in a minute. You see that they sing it in verse 3 before the throne. And the throne appears to be in heaven because it talks about the four living creatures and the elders, which corresponds to the other pictures of the throne in heaven. And yet, uh, the beginning of the vision, John saw them on Mount Zion with the Lamb. But uh, when they're singing, uh, it's before the throne. And I can just picture... When they go into this song, I, I could just see the heavenly uh, multitudes listening 
to this song and worshiping God, you know, along with... Have you ever heard of a chorus of 144,000 strong? Oh, that's got to be beautiful to hear this song. Now, don't feel left out, brother or sister. We have a new song, too. One that God put in our heart. Amen? And if you don't know Jesus Christ, you don't have that new song. You don't know what I'm talking about. And you can sing hymns like everybody else. Maybe you did this morning. But until you know Jesus Christ, you really can't sing them. And you can't say that it's your song until you come to Him. And then you know what I'm talking about. Well, it says that uh, he saw them on uh, Mount Zion. Interesting. Uh, clearly a picture of Jerusalem. And many have wondered, why does he see them on Mount Zion? Well, it's, I think it's just picturing that they are Jews. They are from Israel. Uh, they're called first fruits here in verse 4. They're first fruits from the nation of Israel, perhaps saved early in the tribulation. Certainly first fruits of those who are going to enter into the, the millennial reign where the Lord Jesus Christ, remember, as their Messiah, is going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem. And these, uh, along with others, will be there with him. So, uh, we see the 144,000 again. We're going to see little snippets, little uh, pictures as we go through the chapter, as we have in the parenthesis. Now, a change of scene. The next section uh, is a picture of three angels. The first one is in verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. This is the first of three angels that John will see. Notice he's flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. Uh, perhaps the midst of, of heaven is symbolic in the fact that that's the source of the message, the gospel called the everlasting gospel. It's an eternal message. Certainly it's eternal in its effect. If you have been saved by believing the gospel, you're saved forever. Isn't that great? It's a message with an eternal effect. But it's also, also a message that's going to be an eternal theme. We're not going to leave the gospel behind when we get to heaven. It's going to be the theme of our song as we praise our Savior. The eternal Gospel. Now, notice uh, he says something, and it's going to be an emphasis of the gospel during those terrible times when worship of the beast will be enforced by the penalty of death during, during those days. Fear God and give glory to him instead of the beast. That's the idea. For the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth the sea and springs of water. Imagine what it'll be like witnessing in those days. We're talking about a life and death choice. To come to Christ will be a death penalty. The second angel is in verse 8, and another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. We're going to see more of this Babylon. There are two chapters devoted to it, 17 and 18. So we'll defer going into detail about that. I just wanted to point out one thing. Uh, 
Many believe, and it seems quite possible, that there are two aspects to Babylon the Great. We'll, we'll see that when we get into the uh, chapters. One is the religious aspect, and the other is an economic-slash-political aspect of uh, Babylon. And uh, it's interesting that there are two uh, foreshadowings or mentionings of the judgment of Babylon the Great. It's really described in detail in chapter 17 and 18. But there are previews. Here's one single verse here. And there's another one. If you look over at the end of chapter 16, the seventh bowl and verse 19, which refers to that bowl, says, Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Again, maybe indicating that the judgment is in two parts. Uh, first judgment falling on ecclesiastical Babylon. Now, you don't have to be dogmatic about that. Many believe that that's not the case. Um, but if it is indeed that ecclesiastical Babylon, religious Babylon is judged first, it would seem that it would coincide with the very center of the tribulation because that's when the worship of the beast begins, remember. That's when Satan is cast out of heaven, when the Antichrist comes forth and reveals himself in his true colors, sets up the idol, and... All other forms of worship are abolished, and that would certainly include uh, the religious system of Babylon, the great at that point. So, if that is the case, then this would fall right in the middle of the tribulation. Uh, certainly, the next uh, angel and what he has to say seems to fall right at that juncture as well. Verse 9, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works. Follow them. This seems to be a, a warning and we can read it now and, and get so much out of it, but it'll be so meaningful to someone in that day, particularly to a believer, as they read these words, and particularly the encouragement in verses 12 through 13. And really, you could summarize uh, the message here. You have two choices. Worship the beast. Live now and die eternally. Or worship God, die now, and live forever. That'll be the choice. Okay, the third section of the chapter is comprised of two reapers. Verse 14, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him, and sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth 
was ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. The first reaper here, we have some clues. One like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown. Any idea who that might be? Yes, yeah, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the word here, by the way, in verse 15, for ripe, says the harvest of the earth is ripe, is an interesting word. It literally means overripe, withered and rotten. Interesting. Uh, like, de- like decayed vegetable matter. We're gonna, not going to comment. We're going to hold on to that for just a minute. We're going to go on to the second reaper now. In verse 17, Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Well, we have uh, some similarities here in this passage. And if you're a Bible student, one of the fun things to look for is similarities and differences. And, of course, we're going to try to compare Scripture with Scripture and see what we can figure out here. We have two reapers. We agree on that? First reaper is the Lord Jesus. The second reaper is a what? An angel. Yes. In the first case, by the way, the word ripe, I pointed out, meant overripe, to the point of being rotten. In the second case, the word ripe is a different word, and it simply means ripe in the sense we're used to thinking of it. The grapes are full of juice. They're ready to be reaped. If you're waiting for me to make a conclusion from that, <laughs> you can keep waiting. I'm just telling you these things, okay? You, you make your own conclusions. This is, this is probably one of the most difficult sections of the chapter. I'm going to tell you ahead of time, it's not clear, really, uh, the details here. We, we're going to make some general conclusions when we're done. But uh, you keep thinking here. Um, <clears throat> okay, the, in the second case now... Uh, he says what's being reaped. What is it? And what, what, what's the sort of produce we're talking about here? Grapes, that's right, a vine. Now, it is true that a vine, a grapevine, is sometimes a picture of uh, the nation of Israel. <clears throat> and some people think that that's significant here. Uh, they, they like to jump on the repetition of the, uh, the phrase, the earth. For example, in 18 and 19, the earth, the earth. Remember, we said before that the earth often pictures the nation of Israel. The sea often pictures what? Gentile nations. That's right. You've got to be careful with symbolism in the Bible, though. Some people, every time they see the word earth, oh, that's the Jews. Every time they see the phrase the sea, oh, that's the Gentiles. And you're going to run into some awfully funny doctrines if you do that. So you have to be careful. If it, if it seems to fit the context, go ahead. But... Uh, for example, we could look back at verse 8 of chapter 13. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Well, that's talking about more than the Jews. It goes on and says uh, every tribe, tongue, and nation. And in fact, if you would have paid attention back the first reaper in verse 14, uh, it says the harvest of the earth is ripe. 
So, I think that's a pretty weak basis to say that this is uh, talking about the nation of Israel, to say it's the earth. Can we get some help? Well, let me give you two other passages uh, that come to my mind right away that you might be able to fit with this. The first is Matthew 13, where uh, the Lord Jesus sends out his angels to gather those for judgment from the earth. Seems to fit, uh, perhaps with the second angel here, possibly. And then, of course, uh, the wine press that the angel threw the grapes into was mentioned later in chapter 19. Remember, uh, you're familiar with that phrase where it describes the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who treads out the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. So, what can we say? Well, it's pretty clear. He says it. The earth is ready for judgment. Let's, let's not overlook that fact. That's plain as day. It's ripe. In fact, in the first case, it's beyond ripeness. It's overripe. I think that's talking about right now. As, as a world, as a planet, we are so far from God. God is the last thing uh, people want in their minds. They want to live for the here and now. They don't want to hear about God. And the second thing we can learn is that He does so. He does come in judgment. Okay. Chapter 15. This is where I want to spend the bulk of our time. It's an introduction to the seven bowls, the last sequence of seven of judgments that come on the earth. We'll take it a section at a time. Verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels, having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. Another sign. There's a pop quiz. What are the other signs? It says another sign, inferring that there are others. Anybody remember what the other signs in Revelation are? You might think that there are 50 or 60, but actually there are only two. If you could think of one, I'll give you an A+. Plus. <laughs> I saw a sign in heaven, a woman. Remember chapter 12. Who was the woman? What was it? Israel. Yes, Israel, the nation of Israel. And the other sign was in that same chapter. It was the dragon, which represented who? <coughs> Satan, the devil. That's right. And this is really only the third sign where he uses that word. I saw a sign. Uh, take note of that number three. Three and seven we've seen occur repeatedly throughout the book of Revelation. Three, uh, a picture of the Trinity, of, of the person of God. Seven, a picture of perfection or completeness. <clears throat> Not surprisingly here, in the third sign, the number seven appears. We see seven angels. And they have the seven last plagues or judgments of God. And that will, of course, be the bold judgments, which, Lord willing, when we take... Revelation up again will be in chapter 16. It's, there's an interesting phrase here in verse 1. It's, in your English, it's great and marvelous. And those two words only appear that way twice in the Bible, and they're both in this chapter. It's an interesting uh, combination. The word great, you, you'll recognize in Greek, it's mega. Mega, like megabytes, megabucks, big, a lot. Great and marvelous is the second word. 
And it's talking about uh, the sign that John says. He says, I saw a great and marvelous sign. And certainly, in verse uh, 3, it's describing the works of God, and, and justly so. Great, mega. In talking about the works of God, it, it talks about the extent, the magnitude of his works. God doesn't do things in a small way. He demonstrates his power and his greatness, and it's really beyond comprehension. Think of the greatness of creation. The greatness of sustaining this creation. Think of the greatness of one star. If, if you really begin to concentrate on what a star really is like, how big it is, the energy that it puts out, uh, the vastness of its mass, and then realize that a galaxy will be populated with billions of stars, every one of them different, every one with its own character. In fact, God has named each one of them, no doubt, each name fitting its character. And then to think that the galaxy is full of billions, the universe is full of billions of galaxies each with billions of stars. And then to think that this great God, uh, when he created them, it's mentioned this way in Genesis, and he created the stars also. <laughs> you know, by the way, you know, he created the stars also, like that. Mega, he is great. His works are great. And marvelous, the word means wonderful, awe-inspiring, deserving of worship. Verse 2, and I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. Well, we said at the very outset of Revelation, we have to be careful when we go through here. We always want to look for the word like or as. Uh, we want to take the word of God literally, but we want to look for metaphorical language as well. And here he says like. So, it's not a sea of glass mingled with fire, but it's the best thing that John could think of to compare it to. So, try to picture in your mind a sea of glass mingled with fire, and that's what this was like. Just that would be great and marvelous to see. Well, those standing on it, those who came out of the tribulation, who said no to worship of the beast and yes to God, are there praising him with harps. And this is their song, verse 3, And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. Now, if you see this phrase describing that song, the song of Moses, you'll probably turn back to Exodus, saying, oh, I remember that song, chapter 15, and you go look at it, and you're not going to find these words there. And if you're sharp, you'll say, well, I know he did compose a song in Deuteronomy, and you'll turn to chapter 32, and you won't find these exact words there either. Well, the point is, the ideas are very much the same. In those songs, the song of Moses, the first one in Exodus 15, remember, that's the, the horse and his rider he has cast into the sea. Remember that? The song after the deliverance at the parting of the Red Sea. It was a celebration of the judgment of God, wasn't it? It was a celebration of the judgment of God acting uh, to save his people and to judge the idolatrous nation 
of Egypt. And if you were to look at the end of uh, the song that Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 32, the last section in particular, it has a similar theme, celebrating the judgment of God. It's, it's interesting that whenever we refer to the songs in the book of Revelation, particularly like in Breaking of Bread, isn't it interesting? We invariably turn to chapter 4 or 5, don't we? You know, the two songs there that we saw earlier in the study. Uh, one seems to emphasize the cre- God's act in creation and the other God's act in redemption. And yet here is a song really celebrating the judgment of God. You realize that? It's a celebration of the judgment of God. Who shall not fear you? You alone are holy, and your judgments have been manifested. And it's, the, it's in the, really in the midst of the beginning of the uh, plagues, which are more closely associated with the wrath of God than any others, that this song occurs. It's worshiping God for His judgment. And that's what I want to think about, uh, because we're really in the midst of... Uh, the section in, in Revelation where the wrath of God is more prominent than any place else. The, the word wrath uh, in the New Testament occurs, how can I put it, it occurs more in the book of Revelation than any other book. Not surprisingly, in, in the New Testament. And within the book of Revelation, more than half of the occurrences of the word wrath occur in these short chapters from 14 to 16. It's, a, it's uh, an emphasis, really, of the wrath of God right here in, the, in these chapters. Wrath, the wrath, particularly the wrath of God, is not a popular subject. You don't hear a lot about the wrath of God, do you? People don't want to hear about the wrath of God. And yet, it is just as much a part of the person of God as any other of the attributes. Just as important and just as perfect. God is who He is. And God is a God of wrath. Look back at Romans chapter 9. I mentioned this morning in the breaking of bread that God is in the business, I mean that reverently, of revealing Himself. In fact, we could say that that's one of God's greatest purposes, if not the greatest purpose, to reveal Himself. That's why He created to begin with. Do you realize that? (laughs) To create anything besides Himself would be only so that that something else could know Him. It wasn't so that something else like you and me or the angels could go off and do their own thing. It was so that they and you could have the marvelous privilege of knowing Him. And the way we know him is that is as he reveals himself to us. And he has to do that or we couldn't know him. And of course, he's infinite. He's perfect. He's so far beyond us. It'll take eternity, brothers and sisters, and we still won't know him fully. Only God can completely know God. But it's going to be wonderful going through the uh, day-to-day joy of knowing him deeper and deeper. That's what heaven is. We need to be reminded of that periodically, you know. Even as believers, sometimes we kind of nose kind of nestled down in this life, and we forget what is really important. And the greatest thing for you or for me is to know God.
God. Just as, as he is, considers it important to reveal himself, well, the other end of that reciprocating is to know him, to see what he reveals, to understand it, to appreciate him. And in revealing himself, he reveals himself in his entirety. I, I mentioned his grace this morning. He's revealed his love. We would know he was a God of love without the cross, but oh, oh, how we see the love of God, don't we? In the, love of, in the cross now? We see it. We understand it. I'm not saying we've come to the bottom of it. We can't. But it's wonderful that he revealed his love. That way, we could go through the attributes and how he is revealed, each one. I love to study the Bible and look for the places where it talks about God manifesting or revealing something about himself. It's very important. It starts way back in Genesis, and it goes all the way through Revelation. It's a very important thing. And so, God is holy, and God hates sin, but with a pure hatred. And he has demonstrated and will demonstrate his wrath, his anger against sin. And here in Romans 9, just two verses, verse 22, it talks about that. It says, what if God, wanting to show his wrath, you see, there's the revelation part. There's the idea of him manifesting it, showing it to you, to me, so we can see it. He wants to. And to make his power known. Do you see the idea there? This is one of those verses talking about God Showing what he's like. Endured with much long suffering. There's another attribute, by the way, that he's demonstrating right now. Do you realize right now you're a living demonstration of the long suffering and the patience of God if you don't know him? Do you realize that? Count your heartbeats. Listen to your heart. Count your breaths right now. If you don't know Jesus Christ, every one of those heartbeats, every breath, is a demonstration, you are seeing it right now in technicolor, of the patience of God. As you continue to live another second, another minute, another hour, another day, putting him off, keeping him out of your life, even though he sustains your life, even though he gives you every breath. Oh, he's so patient. And so right now he's demonstrating his long-suffering, but he will demonstrate, reveal, show his wrath. We're used to thinking about God revealing His love, His kindness, His mercy, His righteousness, His holiness. But He's going to reveal His wrath. He, he really uh, has already revealed it. It says that in Romans 1, that the wrath of God is revealed. And you say, where? Where do I see it? Well, I can think of uh, some physical evidences. Go to the Dead Sea. I bet there are two people, at least here in the audience, that have been to the Dead Sea. If you've been to the Dead Sea, raise your hand. There they are. I think there's two. Yeah, Noad and Bill. Was there another hand that went up? Oh, uh, Chris has been there. Okay. There were thriving cities there. Not just Sodom and Gomorrah. The cities of the plain, they were called. And he overturned them in a terrible judgment. It was a, a picture of the wrath of God. And... It's revealed right now. Go there and look at it. You don't have to go to the top of Mount Everest, but on the, uh, Mount Everest and every other mountain in the world, there's evidence of the wrath of God. Do you know what it is? That's right. Very good, Bill. Seashells. 
There are seashells. I don't care where you go. And of course, you know, the geologists twist and turn and say, let's see, we'll count how fast the mountain is moving right now. Okay, it's one millimeter every three weeks. So how long would it take to go from 29,000 feet to zero? Not realizing that God didn't move at one millimeter per every two weeks when he judged the earth and brought the seashells from down there to up there. You see, it's revealed. The evidence is everywhere. Can you imagine the cataclysm that shook this earth when the seashells went to the top? When the very fountains of the deep were broken up? Let me say a word here about the wrath of God. The problem is, you know, we think about the attributes of God and we think about ourselves because we have to have something to start with to try to understand God. We think about love, we start with our love and we run out real fast and say, uh-uh, what I have is not love. Let's leave that behind. Now let me learn what love is. That's what you have to do. And so it is with wrath. So when we think about our wrath and our anger, I'll be honest, I'll think about my wrath, my anger. It says in the Bible... Be angry and sin not. I don't know if I've ever done that. I don't think I have. Every time I've been angry, it's because I've sinned. I was selfish. I was proud. I was impatient. It was sin, pure and simple. It was an outburst. Can you relate to this? No, I'm alone in this, I guess, huh? (laughs) You see, when we get angry, when we demonstrate wrath, it's a childish, really selfish pouting. I want... I want my way, and the way I'm going to get it, I'm going to get make things unpleasant for you, you know. And when, and if you if you want things to be pleasant again, just do what I want. Isn't that a great way of manipulating people? That's 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 our wrath. Forget that. You see, the wrath of God is pure. It's just. It should be. And because it's the wrath of God, it's two other things. It's infinite. Wow. It has to be, because he is. That's why hell never ends, you see. It can't. Hell is, the Catholics come up with this crazy idea of purgatory, you know. You go in and get purified for a thousand years or whatever, and then everything's okay. That is not in the Bible. Hell is not for reformation. Hell is not remedial. Hell is forever, you see. It confirms the choice made by individuals in this life. While you're living, while you're breathing, while your heart is beating, that's the patience of God and He's giving you an opportunity to choose. When your heart stops beating and your breath stops, the opportunity to choose is gone. And at that point, you are sealed. And the wrath of God, which had been abiding on you, John chapter 3, verse 36, will then come into effect forever. It must be forever. And the second thing is it's perfect. The wrath of God is perfect. It's the idea like it's pure. It's not like our wrath. He hates sin. It comes from a pure and perfect hatred of evil. It says of the Lord Jesus in Hebrews that he has hated sin and loved righteousness. I love those verses. He has hated sin. I wish I could say that about myself. I get a taste of what it's like every once in a while. You know, we we hate things and we love things and people. But to hate sin, in its essence, to hate it with a pure hatred that doesn't stop, that doesn't give in, that doesn't compromise. That's the heart of God, you see. And to love, He loves righteousness. 
with a pure love. It's the most pleasing thing to him. He loves righteousness. We don't see his wrath the way we might expect to right now because of his patience, because of his long-suffering. But we're reading right now, and we have been reading about the time when the patience will finally come to an end. You see, the patience can't go on forever. Then God would be tolerating sin. God would not be God. He, he would be a liar. The soul that sins shall die, he said. He can't lie about that. And so he's going to keep his word. I said there were evidences already of the wrath of God. I talked about the Dead Sea. I talked about the seashells on the mountains. The greatest, I believe, demonstration, proof that we have right now is the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, he would have spared him if he could have. He would have spared his own son because it was there that our sins were taken into account, that thing that he hates. But instead, we hear these words from... uh, Quoted on the cross uh, from Psalm 22. The Lord Jesus asked this question, Why have you forsaken me, your son? Why Why forsake me? And you need to think about that. Why would God forsake his son? What reason could there be? Well, in, in Psalm 22, he goes on to answer it. He says, But thou art holy. He understood why. God's wrath is rooted in his holiness, his abhorrence of sin. And let me tell you, as we talk about this, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you should be trembling. It says in Hebrews, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he is about to experience the wrath of God. He knew it. You don't know right now. Maybe you're getting a little glimpse this morning. We have never seen Jesus this way. Listen to what he says. He says, My soul is troubled to the point of death. Wow. What would it take for Jesus to say that? We never heard him say anything like that in the Gospels. But in Gethsemane, he says, My soul is troubled to the point of death as he anticipates, as he looks forward to seeing, to experiencing, to facing the wrath of God. And as he thought about it and as he uh, went to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says he fell on his face. Do you get the picture? He was troubled. And three times, not just once, three times, he asked God that the cup might pass from him, the cup, the cup of the wrath of God. If only you knew, if you really knew what Jesus was talking about there. And if you don't know Jesus Christ now, I'll tell you, you'd run to him. You'd tremble right now. You'd fall on your face. We're familiar with the verse in John 3, verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There's another verse very much like it toward the end. I mentioned it earlier. It says, He who believes in the Son has, present tense, everlasting life. Praise God. Isn't that neat? It doesn't say will have. You know, We're not waiting in hope right now to receive eternal life. We have it right now. 
But it goes on to say that he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, never have anything to do with it. But the wrath of God abides on him. And you get the picture of the wrath of God just waiting to take effect like the sword of Damocles hanging over the head of anyone who doesn't have Jesus Christ. The wrath of God right here. Just waiting for that thin thread to snap. Why? If you don't know the Lord, it's because you are responsible for a lifetime of the stuff that God hates. Sin. You and nobody else. It's not your mother's fault. It's not your father's fault. It's not your teacher's fault. It's not your preacher's fault. It's yours. It's your sin. Think about that. You and you alone. We could go down the list of Romans chapter 1. Selfishness, gossip, malice, immorality. In thought, word, deed. Remember, God hates sin with a holy, pure hatred. Would it be a scary thing to be in the position of doing that? Moment by moment, day by day? And that's you. If you don't know Jesus... Look at Romans chapter 2. We're going to look again at some of the attributes of God here. They're going to come up in the context of what we're talking about here. And I want you to think as we read these verses, is this you? Is this where you're at right now? Verse 4. Or... Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But, in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring or storing up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Think about these words. And honestly, you don't have to answer anybody. I just think in your own heart. First of all, he says, Do you despise the riches of his goodness? Forbearance and long-suffering. Despise, we use that word, we, mean, we think it means hate. The word despise doesn't mean hate in the Bible. It means to think nothing of. It means to count it worthless. The riches daily heaped upon you, his kindness, his, his patience with you. Right now, if you don't know the Lord, you are experiencing moment by moment the riches of his goodness, his kindness. Do you realize that? His patience. Oh, it's rich. What do you think about it? What does it mean to you? Does it mean a lot? Or do you never really think about it and really don't care? That's what he's asking here. If you don't care, if it really doesn't mean a lot to you, then you despise it. He says, well, if that's the case, you need to think about this. Because uh, it's, it's for a reason. He says, not knowing that the goodness or the kindness of God leads you to repentance. The reason he's heaping the riches up in his goodness and his kindness and his patience and his forbearance on you is for a reason. It's not so you can have a good time. It's so that you can do something. And it's to turn from your sin and turn to him. And I don't know how much longer he's going to heap that riches of his kindness on you to permit you to do that. If it's too difficult for you to understand your sin, just think about one command. 
The greatest one. So let's think about that one. This is the most important command. Jesus said it. He said, this is the greatest commandment of all. You shall love your Lord, the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. How's that? All your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. Are you doing that? Right now. Were you doing it before I asked the question? Were you doing it when you came into this room, loving God that way? That's, that's the first commandment, Jesus said, the greatest one. I'll be honest, you've never done it. Not to that extent. Verse 5, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart. In other words, in keeping with, you see. He's talking to the person who's read this and they say, yeah, I know that's true, but uh, I'm going to wait. You know, I've got more important things to do. Uh, all this God stuff, that's not for me right now. I don't want Jesus Christ to run my life right now. Well, then, he says, in accordance with your hardness, your impen- in other words, in keeping with that attitude. That's what he's saying here. If, if that is your attitude, that's fine, that's okay. Then in keeping with that, he says, you're doing something. You are storing up for yourself wrath. And you don't see it right now. He says the time you're going to see it is, is this, in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's what it says in Hebrews. Everyone likes new and different things, don't they? Sometimes people measure their life by what's coming down the road. A vacation, uh, a purchase, a relationship. You know? Variety is the spice of life. Isn't that what we say? Maybe that's how you're living your life right now, from one exciting thing to the next. And you really don't want to think about the, the end. I can tell you right now what the last two new things are going to be for you. The last two new things that you're going to experience. Guaranteed. The first one will be death. You've never experienced that before. I can tell you right now, if you're listening to me. You don't know what it's like, but you're going to experience it. And you're going to find out that on the other side of it, you're still you. All you've done is left behind this, this thing right here, this container, this tent, this decaying. This isn't you. This is just your body. But what makes you, you, your soul, your spirit, is not going to stop. And you will experience a new thing. You're going to die. I can promise you that. God's Word says that, so I can say that. That's the next to the last thing, new thing, that's on your calendar. I don't care what other things you have planned. You know, maybe you have tickets to a concert in June next year. I don't know if you're going to be there. But you will keep this appointment. And after that, the new thing that you will experience, Hebrews 9.27 is really what I'm quoting here, after death will be the thing you've heard about. Maybe you laughed about it. Maybe you mocked it. Maybe you just said, I don't want to think about it. But you will experience it, and it's the judgment of God. You will, you will go through it, yes. Guaranteed, God's Word says that, so you can be sure of it. The judgment of God. In particular, you're going to face God alone. In particular, it will be the Lord Jesus Christ in glory, in judgment. And you'll have no help, no friends, 
It'll be just you and him and no one else. No defense, no answer. Alone. And as he looks at you with his piercing, searching gaze, you're going to give an account to him of why you insisted on living without him. Now, I say you're going to give an account. Really, that's not quite right. As you look into the face of your creator, your sustainer, and the one who should have been your savior, you're not going to say a thing. There's going to be a book that's read, and all this is based on what the Bible says. And you're going to, you're going to hear the words of that book, and it's going to be so precise, it's not going to exaggerate your life, it's just going to enumerate from beginning to end your sin. And you're going to re- relive them in all their unglory. And there'll be nothing added, no, no lies, no exaggeration. And there'll be no plea. I said that before. The choice can be made now, not then. It'll be too late then. Because after that is read, read, I'll promise you, you're going to be so convinced, you're going to understand it so clearly that you deserve the judgment of God. You're not going to say, oh, but Lord! You're going to have the sinking sensation and it's going to get worse and worse as you realize this is right. And there's no way out. And at that point, you'll be cast from Him. Totally alone. Forever. Nothing new. Ever again. Just a sameness. But oh, what a terrible sameness. The same darkness. The same agony. The same fire. The same as it was yesterday and the same that it's going to be tomorrow. Without remedy. The same regret. Although maybe not the same. I think it'll probably get worse. As the time goes on, and all you have to do is to think about what you should have done. I think the regret is going to get worse. And there's no end to it. Well, there is another way. There's there's an option. There's a choice that you can make. Praise God. I'm not alone. I don't have to be alone. I'm helped by one man. And you can call on that one person to help you. But the choice must be made in this life. You need to choose the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord right now. And then the last two new things for you will be the same, in a sense, you'll experience physical death. But for you, it's going to be joy inexpressible as you finally see Him and are with Him. And you won't see Him in judgment, but you'll see Him as the one who loved you and died for you. And it's not going to be an eternity of sameness. Being with Him each day, knowing Him better, That's what you were made for, by the way, to begin with. To know Him and be with Him. And it's going to get better and better forever and ever. Read Ephesians 2, 7. In the ages to come, literally as the ages roll on each other, He will reveal His kindness to us. 
I said that in the tribulation there was this picture of the gospel which is kind of special to that time. Choose the beast and choose life, but then death forever or choose God and choose death at that point, but life forever. And in a sense, that's the way it is right now. Right now, you have a choice between two alternatives. Jesus said it this way, whoever will save his life will lose it. There it is. That's the choice of the beast. If you want to hang on to your life and say, I want to live my life the way I want to live it, I want to grab for all the gusto, you're going to experience what you may think is life, although God calls it death because it's apart from Him. And it's going to pass by so quickly, you're going to say, where did it go? But your choice sealed your eternal fate. Because then, after that little short of what you might think is life, will begin death forever. And that, to me, that's no choice. I don't know what you think. I don't know how, uh, what the sin is you think is worth hanging on to. I can't think of any sin worth hanging on to for that. Or any earthly pleasure. The other choice, Jesus said it this way, whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. That's the choice you should make. You die. You see, you die to yourself. Your choices, your decisions, you're ruling your life. And you choose Him. Say, Lord, take my life and let it be consecrated to Thee. Choose death to yourself and you get life, <laughs> real life, life with Him in the bargain. But let me stress, by doing nothing, you choose. By doing nothing, by saying, I'm going to put it off and let me think about it a little bit longer, You've chosen right there, and you've chosen death forever. Like God said to the nation of Israel, choose life, choose Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It's clear from this, Lord, this is not the word of men. We wouldn't write things like this. We don't like to hear things like this. But we know it's true. And we thank you that you warn us to flee from the wrath to come. More importantly, Lord, we thank you that there is a place to flee to. There's a place of refuge, a place of safety hidden in the Savior's side. And we will be remiss, Lord, in not asking this morning, if there is anyone here this morning who doesn't know Jesus Christ, that they would choose him today and be saved forever. We ask it in his name. Amen.